0: Welcome to Dyslexia Explored. This is Darius Nomdaron, your host. In this episode, number 16, we explore dyscalculia, its traits and practical ways to help. Independent education consultant Judy Hornigold gave this first keynote at the Dyslexia Scotland Education Conference 2018. I recorded it while I was listening and mapping it out. It's entitled Practical Ways to Support Dyslexic and Dyscalculic Learners with Maths, with thanks to Dyslexia Scotland and Judy Cornigold to broadcast this talk on the podcast. You are going to learn a lot very quickly. It's helpful for parents and tutors of children with dyslexia to be aware of this potential aspect or related challenge. This broadcast is brought to you by Bullet Map Studio, where we're passionate about training hyper-creative families, dyslexic families, bring creative order to chaos with the Bullet Map method of mind mapping. And now, the fascinating presentation by Judy Hornigold on Dyscalculia. This podcast is sponsored by DyslexiaProductivityCoaching.com, which helps you organize yourself creatively with a productivity system for Apple devices.
1: I'm really delighted to be able to introduce um, the first of our two speakers. Um, Judy Horngold is an independent education uh, consultant. She's specializing in dyslexia and dyscalculia. Yeah. Um, she's going to talk about the practical ways to support dyslexia and dyscalculia um, learners with maths. Um, and students come all the way up from uh, Birmingham, so we're delighted to see you. We'd like to see all the travel plans went, went, went to plan. So I just ask you if you'd like to, to welcome Judy to, to, to the same. Good morning, everybody. Thank you very much for inviting me up here today. I'm delighted to be here um, so i'm going to talk to you this morning about practical ways really how you can help learners who've got difficulty with maths uh, for whatever reason so a lot of children have difficulty with mathematics because they're dyslexic uh, or because they've got dyscalculia but i'm also going to talk to you this morning about maths anxiety because i think that's a really big problem for a lot of children uh, whether they've got dyslexia or dyscalculia or not, mass anxiety seems to be a big issue with a lot of the children that we're working with. So we're going to have a look at how to deal with that as well. Um, so firstly, if we look at dyslexia as you know. <laughs> dyslexic children have problems with chronological awareness, processing speed, memory, organisation, to name but a few, and all of those things can impact on their mass ability. There has been some research then um, by Daniel Ansari over at Western University uh, in Canada, and he has made a link between phonological awareness and dyscalculia, which is quite surprising, quite interesting for me when I, when I read about it thinking well that 's an interesting link that uh, phonological awareness or phonological deficit is actually implicated in dyscalculia, so that 's certainly something to be watching out for. But in terms of children who've got those difficulties, uh, certainly for dyslexia, we know they've got difficulty with sequencing. Uh, Processing speed obviously impacts on their ability to hold information in mind while they're working. They work very slowly, so they've lost the thread of what they're doing in maths when they're working. Um, Poor short-term memory. Uh, Unfortunately in the UK now, I don't know whether it's in Scotland as well, we've got this multiplication times table test coming in in 2020, not very useful for children who are struggling with maths, Um, and they've got poor long-term memory for retaining number facts, that kind of thing. So what can we do about it? Well, one of the things that we can do uh, is try and alleviate some of those problems. And I think one of the main messages when you're working with children with dyslexia and dyscalculia is some of the fixes are very simple. And I think it, it doesn't take an awful lot of adjustment to make a big difference to some of these children. So where you've got children who are finding it difficult to keep their place on the page, finding it difficult to copy. Um, There's lots of things that we can do. One of the things that I use uh, are these little prompt cards. I don't know whether you you use these at all. They're like little um, credit card size, blank bits of card, and you can just put whatever you like on it to help children with the things that they're forgetting. So I tend to use these like a daily memory pack. A dyslexia Action are out there today in the foyer, and they, when I used to work for Dyslexia Action, we used reading cards and spelling cards, and it was that kind of daily overlearning automaticity of practice that was really, really important. So these prompt cards can be used to remind children of uh, number facts, times tables, particular definitions of words, things that they're getting confused with. And the idea being that the children will practice these cards on a daily basis for maybe 5-10 minutes a day. So it's not a big ask for these children, if it's the repetition uh, that is the really important thing. Aperture cards, I don't know if you know what I mean by that, but if you've got like a bit of card with a window cut out of it, where the child has a whole page of suns, then you can have the aperture card over the page, so just one calculation is in view, and that way the children won't be looking from the book to the page and picking up the wrong number or confusing two or three questions at the same time. So they can be really helpful. Arrows and colour to highlight direction, particularly for children who are struggling with number reversals. If the children always see the numbers that go from left to right in one colour, and the numbers that go from right to left in a different (coughs) colour, that can really, really help them with this confusion of number reversals. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about CPA approach. That's the concrete pictorial abstract approach, very much in the foreground at the moment in terms of Singapore maths, um, but it's nothing new. It was, it was um, invented, if you like, by Jerome Bruner back in the 1960s. So Jerome Bruner came up with this concrete pictorial abstract approach, which really reinforces the fact that when we're working in maths, we need to have physical resources in front of us. So if you look outside in some of the exhibitors, we've got 10 frames, and air rods, base 10 materials, all of those things, really, really useful for children who are struggling, so that they can actually physically work with the equipment, and then they can visualise it if it's not in front of them, and then they can link it to the abstract. Because for a lot of these children, working at the abstract is where the problem lies. They can't visualise the maths. They don't really understand what's going on. So that's a really important approach. Um, And then more obvious things, you know, processing speed, give them more time. Give them less things to do and more time to do it. Sounds obvious, but doesn't always happen in school. Um, And then this idea of overlearning. And as I say, with these prompt (coughs) cards, that's probably one of the main strategies. This little and often approach to help these children uh, to... Transfer information into their long term memory because that's what they have difficulty with. So, I want to talk to you mainly really today about dyscalculia. Um, it's an interesting one at the moment, dyscalculia, because more and more people are aware of dyscalculia, and that's a good thing in some respects, but it's also not a good thing in other respects because more and more people are thinking can't do maths, or I'm dyscalculic, and actually that's doing a big disservice to the people who really are dyscalculic. So I think we need to be aware of not having this kind of umbrella term that dyscalculia will fit everybody who's struggling with maths because it, it certainly doesn't. Um, the governments in the, in the UK are, and in England certainly are veering away from it because they don't really want to know what to do with it. Uh, but they, um, they had addressed it And if you look at their definition back in 2001, uh, from the National Numeracy Strategy, uh, they were saying it's this difficulty in understanding number concepts, children who don't have an intuitive grasp of number, um, and even if they get the answer right, it's more of an accident than a kind of deliberate thing. Uh, They don't really know how they got the answer right. So it started to address that in 2001. They don't really mention it that much if you Google it now on the DFES website. And the DSM, the Diagnostic statistics Manual, the fourth version of that I think had the most useful definition of dyscalculia in that it was saying it's this difficulty that is substantially less than what you would expect. So it's a little bit like dyslexia, you know, it's an unexpected difficulty. And this is the real trademark of dyscalculia, is that everything else seems to be fine. There's no reason why they would be struggling so much with mathematics. So it's unexpected, and it's a very, very profound difficulty. Um, children with dyscalculia don't understand numbers pretty much on any level whatsoever. So it's not just they're finding place value difficult or they're struggling with fractions. It's a much, much more fundamental problem than that. So the indicators that we have of dyscalculia, the number one indicator, which we're going to look at in a few slides' time, is the inability to subitize. So some of you probably know what I mean by subitizing, but it's our ability to identify how many items there are in a set without actually having to count them. So it's this instant recognition of how many items there are in a set. And it's something that dyscalculated people really, really struggle with. So in terms of identification, it's actually quite an easy thing to identify, because you can show children some items and see if they can just immediately say how many there are. But we'll do something on that in a moment. The second one is this uh, poor number sense. So as I say, children with dyscalculia have no sense of number. They don't understand that nine is larger than six. Uh, They don't understand the numerical magnitude that's associated to numerical symbols. So it's very difficult for them to work with number. And there was a lady that I came across who was a very successful businesswoman, um, highly successful, very intelligent lady, severely dyscalculic, and she couldn't deal with money at all. So if she had a taxi journey and maybe the taxi fare was £15, 75 for example, she wouldn't know that a £20 note would cover that. So she would open her purse and just say to the taxi driver, take what you need out of my purse. Now, You can imagine, that's putting in quite a vulnerable (laughs) position, Um, but also, what level of mathematical understanding had she got that she didn't realise that £20 was more than £15.75? And when I spoke to her about it, she was saying, well, 20 is two digits, 15.75 is four digits. It's a long number. It's a physically bigger number. And that was where her association with number was. So she didn't understand place value or anything like that at any level. So it's a very profound difficulty, um, and those two things really are the key indicators. But also you've got this inability to generalise. So people with dyscalculia don't make the links. They don't realise that if 3 and 4 is 7, that tells them 30 and 40 is 70, or 4 and 4 is 8. They don't make those connections and they don't see the patterns. And then we've got inability to estimate, uh, persisting with immature strategies. I've had people that I've worked with when they're adding 157 and 63, for example, drawing 157 dots and drawing 63 dots. Okay. Um, you'll get there in the end but it's not a very efficient strategy. So these are the kind of problems that dyscalculics have. Um, and then the third area area I wanted to talk to you about, as I say, is mass anxiety. So in terms of like the causation of difficulty in math, we've got dyslexia, we've got dyscalculia, we've got mass anxiety. And this is something that I'm particularly interested in because it's so prevalent in children that we work with, and dare I say in adults too. So I think you know, we all have a little bit of mass anxiety at certain times in our lives. And maybe parents as well inadvertently uh, relay that to their children, and their own mass anxiety gets passed on to their own children. So, mass anxiety is quite a big issue. Um, And David Sheffield, back in the University of Derby, he's come up with these techniques to overcome mass anxiety. He's done quite a lot of research into it. Um, And one of the things that he recommends. Is this idea of short targeted intervention? Now, a lot of the schools I go into, the children who are getting some support, often they'll get an hour a week, half an hour a week, in a group with lots of other children who've got lots of different difficulties. And actually that's not very effective. We know that it's much more effective if the children can have maybe six or seven weeks of intensive targeted, specifically targeted individual intervention and it doesn't have to be um, over a vast period of time. He was suggesting 20 minutes for five days. I think maybe some of the children I've seen would need a little bit more than that, but it's the specific, well, the specific, I do you say it? You know what I mean. The actual targeted intervention that we really, really want these children to have. The second thing that he said as well is to write down your worries kind of CBT type thing, really. And when I first came across this, I thought, that's a bad Isn't that going to focus you on your worries if you're writing them down? But not, so it's very cathartic to kind of write down all your worries to do with maths. Certainly, if you're going into a test situation, prior to going into the test or the exam, you can write down the things that you're worried about, and that seems to have a very positive effect uh, on the way that you're approaching the test. He also talked about uh, reappraising anxiety, and actually I think that's quite an interesting idea because a little bit of anxiety is quite a good thing. It kind of ups our game a bit if we're a little bit anxious. It's when it tips over into being too anxious that our working memory is compromised. So when we're too anxious, everything shuts down. But a little bit of anxiety is a good thing. And we know this with athletes and people who are kind of performing in that way. It actually gets the adrenaline going, helps them to perform better. So I think if children understand that it's perfectly normal to feel anxious before a test, then they can kind of accept that anxiety and not worry about it too much. And um, the next one always makes me laugh because I think are working with dyscalculic people here, and the idea was that you help the children to breathe more slowly, and the idea here is that they have 10 breaths every 60 seconds. And I thought, well, try saying that to a dyscalculic person and see what happens. They'll probably start hyperventilating. <laughs> so, but, yeah, but what I tend to do is just try and uh, breathe with the children and say, right, let's just slow down your breathing. Just breathe at the same pace as I am we can just calm those nerves that they have around maths and I think it's really important that we do try and overcome this anxiety because if you're teaching somebody who's really really anxious they're not going to be able to take anything in they're not going to be receptive to learning so it's important that we get over this anxiety before we start trying to work with these children Um, the next one here is to imagine a safe or a happy place and uh, I have my own experience of this with my son. My youngest son, Sam, is dyslexic. He's 20 now. He's at university. Um, but when he was doing his maths A-levels, he was really, really struggling. And like a lot of children, he did fine with his GCSE. Uh, he got an A-star for his GCSE, It was fantastic. When he went to do his maths A-level, he got a U in the first year of his A-levels. I remember driving down the road as he was there, I was picking him up from school, and he said, Mum, I didn't do very well in my AS levels, uh, didn't get as, as good a grade as I was hoping, and I thought well, maybe he'd got a B or a C or something, and he said, I've got a U, and I honestly I went, you what? <laughs> and he drove off the road, and um, and I said to him, right, we need to kind of get hold of this and do some strategies. So I was talking him through all of these strategies, and on the way to his Maths A level, I was saying to Sam, right, I want you to imagine that you're in your happy place. And then I thought, hang on a minute, he's 18 years old, I don't want to know what was happening. So I was saying to him, just hold his head don't tell me, don't do <laughs> <So>, that. <laughs> but, um, but they did work for him, and they did, it did calm him down, because he was incredibly anxious and I knew he wouldn't be able to perform in his exam if he had that kind of level of anxiety. And then the last thing is humour. As you know, mathematicians are generally hilarious. They <laughs> have the most amazing sense of humour. So um, I've got a couple of jokes here for you that I know will have you rolling around. <laughs> so, sorry, you so the cornier the better than but actually laughing. That's very nice of you. Um, <laughs> But the idea here is that if you're laughing, you're relaxed. So the minute you start laughing, you naturally relax. And the cornier the joke, the better, really, because it's a bit about well, you know, that's fine. There's loads and loads of mass jokes on the internet should you have the time to, uh, to discover them. So um, definitely would recommend those strategies to you. Um, so let's have a look at what we mean by sub-itizing. So. You can tell me how many birds there are there. Eight. <coughs> Quite tricky, isn't it? They're all kind of squished up together. Um, that's hard for us to do, isn't it? So let's have a look at this. How many dots? Five. 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 OK. And that's really good summarizing, because straight away you knew there was five. You didn't have to count them, did you? You it straight away. How about now? Hmm, not so much. <laughs> so now we're having to count, aren't we? So that's the difference. That's subitizing, well, we can immediately say how many items there are. Whereas this, we can't advertise. it's too many. Okay? So generally speaking, uh, children who got or adults who've got dyscalculia uh, find that incredibly difficult to do. Um, A typical person would be able to sabotage between five or six, maybe seven items in a set. And I was talking to um, a chap that I know who's severely dyscalculic and severely dyslexic, incredibly accomplished young man. He's uh, doing a master's degree in geology, so he's overcome uh, and found strategies around his dyslexia and his dyscalculia, but I was saying to him, as an adult, do you still find it impossible to sabotage? And he said yes. Even if he was looking at, say, a bowl of fruit with four apples <coughs> in the bowl, he couldn't tell you there was four without counting them. So all that experience he's had growing into adulthood, he still cannot recognize the number of items in the set. So it's a persistent difficulty that, that goes through uh, right into adulthood. And interestingly, this chap, he volunteered on a Friday night for the ambulance service in New Zealand, it was. And I said, wow, that's interesting. So with your dyslexia and your dyscalculia, on a Friday night, you're going around in an ambulance ministering things to, to patients. How does that work? And he said, he checks the maths. <laughs> so he doesn't ever get the chance to overdose anybody but very very accomplished young man but it was very interesting that these quite kind of basic difficulties still persist into adulthood so whereas we can't do that actually, we we're expected to be able to do that a dyscalculic person might not be able to tell you how many items there are even when there's just two they're quite likely to count them one to one and it wouldn't instantly recognize. So in terms of identifying learners who've got dyscalculia, it's quite an easy way to identify. Uh, I wouldn't say it was a diagnosis by any stretch of the imagination, but it's certainly something that would flag up, this is a little bit more than just struggling with maths, this specific difficulty potentially this child has got. So one of the ways that we can help children to do the thing that they're finding difficult is to use dot patterns. <laughs> so what I mean by dot patterns are little cards uh, where you've got arrangements of dots on them, like you would have on the, on dice or on dominoes or numicon that kind of thing. And what they do is they help provide that visual link between the concrete and the abstract. So it's a little bit like that pictorial element, if you like, uh, between the concrete and the abstract. Uh, They help the children to develop a sense of number, um, and they help with their conservation of number. We talk a lot about the threeness of three. I don't know if we've heard people talk about that. What is three all about? How is three made? Where does three live in the world of number, and how does it relate to other numbers? So this is what we mean by this kind of sense of number and the conservation of number. And dot patterns can help um, children to do that. And you'll see there's lots of different ways of representing number through using dots. If you look at some of the stands outside, you've got books by Steve Chin, uh, Ronit Bird. They all use different dot patterns. Um, and I'll show you some of them in a moment. So if we look at... This is the kind of thing I was saying to you that the dyscalculic person would really struggle with in identifying that. It's much easier when you look at it like that. So what we're trying to do with these dyscalculic learners is present numbers to them, not in a random form, but in a distinct pattern where they can then get the idea that this is five. And when they see that pattern, they know it's five. Now, we know that's five because we're familiar with dice patterns and playing board games. Sadly, a lot of children now aren't playing those kind of board games that we used to play when we were younger, and maybe don't have that kind of automatic recognition of those numbers up to six. But it's certainly something that I would always start with just calculating those, looking at these dice patterns, these specific <laughs> patterns. And if you look at that five, and then maybe have you can get these um, counters that have got two colors. So each side of the counter is a different color. They're in, and my favorite resource. I use them pretty much all the time. Um, so if you do that kind of activity where you've set out the five like that, and then you turn over the middle one, here you can see you've got the dice pattern of four and the dice pattern of one. And the children then beginning to develop their number sense that five is so a four and one. If you do it with two diagonals, now you've got the dice pattern of three and the dice pattern of two. So the child's not only understood what five is, but now they know that five is made up of a four and a one and a three and a two. Why is that useful? Well, if I'm adding nine and five, it's useful for me to think of the five as a four and a one. So I can make a ten with the nine and the one and add on the four. So it's all about understanding what you can do with number, why you would do it, and how it's going to help you. So being able to break that five down is a really important skill when we're calculating. So if we look at the dot patterns here, these are the dot patterns, <coughs> an example of a set pattern one that Bird uses these, they were from Dorian Yeo's work. And this is how she sets out the patterns. So seven is a bit of an odd one to me, Um, That's not how I see a seven. I don't know whether it's how you see a seven. I'm always thinking of a seven with a three diagonally, a bit like a domino tile. But what Dorian is working with here and Ron is working with is looking at doubles and near doubles. So you can see that the eight is double four, and the seven is a four and a three, and the nine is a four and a five. So that's the kind of message that she's giving with her dot patterns. If you look at... um, Steve Chin's patterns, what he does is he builds up to five and then he repeats. So Dorian's looking at doubles and near doubles, and Steve's looking at making five and then repeating. So you've got the one, two, three, four, five, and then you make another five. So it's a different kind of message if you like about how we understand number. And one of the things that I do when I'm first working with children who are struggling is to give them um, a load of sticky dots or a bingo, dibber, and felt-tip thing and some cards and say, right, I want you to represent the numbers 1 to 10 with dots and see what they do. Because some children will just be completely random and they'll just put them any old towel. And other children, maybe if they've been using unicorns, might use the Unicorn pattern. But it gives you an understanding of their understanding of the number system. Is it completely random, or have they seen some connection between one number and the next? Because for some children, they don't realise that five is one more than four and one less than six. They haven't made that connection. So it's an interesting thing to do and then you can start introducing these dot patterns and helping the children to understand number through using these dot patterns. So in the same way that you would set out an alphabet arc if you were working with a dyslexic child, you can set out a number arc with numerals, with the symbols, but also with the dots that associate with those symbols. So the children are learning the numerical magnitude that goes with that numerical (coughs) symbol. And that's one of the things they really struggle with. In the brain, those two things are completely separately located. So where we store our number symbol knowledge is nowhere near where we store our number magnitude knowledge. And it's trying to make that connection that's really difficult for a a lot of children. Um, Numicon is very useful. Anybody using Unicorn? Yes? Happy with it? Is it quite widely used in Scotland? Yes? Yeah. So, for those of you that haven't come across Numicon, um, <laughs> as you can see, it teaches odds and needles pretty well. Um, so that's a very good strength of it. They're little plastic <laughs> tiles with holes in, and then you've got little cylinders that you can put into the holes developed by Oxford University, um, specifically for children who are struggling with maths, but also obviously it has its uh, benefits across the board. My only kind of word of warning with Numicon is I've been to a couple of schools where they've said, we are a Numicon school, okay. Okay. Um, and they only use Numicon. Now, for me, that's going to be quite difficult if the children are then having to represent the maths using something else. And whilst I agree that children who are really, really struggling, any port in the storm, you know, anything that's going to help them to understand is good, but I think we need to represent the maths with lots of different materials so they've actually understood the maths rather than using the uh, numicon as a crutch. And one of the things that I always say about concrete manipulatives and mathematical equipment, they're objects to think with, not objects to count with. So they're objects that are going to help us understand the maths, rather than as the only way we can do the maths is by using the objects, the difference uh, between those two things. So Ubicon, very useful. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit, if I've got time, Yeah, about air rods. Do you use air rods? Yes. Some of you might remember them the first time around. I certainly do. Um, and is very popular in the 50s and 60s. Then they kind of went out of fashion. Now they're coming back in. So they're very useful. But I just wanted to talk to you as well, um, prior to that, about this idea of key facts and derived facts. Because again, this is a really useful strategy when you're working with children who are really struggling, particularly with their times tables. And the way that I introduce it is to say to the children, consider our money system. We have a 1P, 2P, 5P, a 10P. Why don't we have a 3P? Why haven't we got a 7P? Any ideas? Don't need it, do we? We don't need a 3P or a 7P or a 9P because we can work those out. We can make those using the coins that we've got. So we know that a 3P we can make from a 2P and a 1P. So that's all we need, the 1p, 2p, 5p, and 10p. So if you now equate this to your times tables, surely they're the only ones you need to know. If you know the 1 times, 2 times, 5 times, and 10 times, you can work everything else out. Now, obviously, I'm not saying to you that's all we need to do is just teach them 1s, 2s, 5s, and 10s. But for children who are highly anxious and who are struggling to remember their times tables, it can be very comforting for them to think, actually, the ones that are the easy no times tables are the really useful ones. And I can use them to work out the horrible ones, like the seven times table, um, because I can add the two times and the five times together. So it's giving children a strategy, a way around, helping them to work out the things that they can't remember. So, if you look at um, maybe 3 times 8, that would be 1 times 8 plus 2 times 8, etc. So, I've just got some examples there. Um, and it just does comfort the children to think they don't have to remember every single multiplication table. And as I say, that's going to be something that they're going to have to do in a couple of years' time um, for the multiplication table's tests. So, that's a useful strategy um, to help them. Work out something they don't know from something that they do know. And again, you can apply it to doubles and near doubles, um, derived facts we've known about since some very important research at the University of Warwick back in 1994. And what they did here was they did a a test, addition and subtraction test, on a bunch of children, and they analysed how they had worked out the answers. The test. And the children who did really, really well on the test, 61% of them were using derived facts. So that means if question one was six and five, and question two was six out of six, they just used the first question to work out the second one. The children who did really poorly, none of them used derived facts. And that second question, six out of six, they were doing it from scratch. They wouldn't have made those. So these children who who are struggling with masks, often because they're just going right back to the beginning and doing everything, as so they've never seen anything like it before in their lives, and they're not making those links and those connections. So it's really important that we can help these children to use derived facts rather than just working everything out from scratch. Um, And this kind of thing here, making links, making connections, really important and is very useful for doing that kind of thing. Um, we won't have time to, to go into that so much this morning. But what I did want to talk to you about um, is Professor Sharma's work. <coughs> Professor Sharma was very um, active in the field of dyscalculia back in the 1970s. He's still around today. Some of you might see him speaking. And he came up with these principles for learning mathematics but really are the basis of pretty much anything that you'll, you'll see. So any books, any interventions, anything on dyscalculia, maths learning difficulties will stem from this kind of thinking. And he had these four major principles for teaching. <coughs> first one is to make sure you're using the right equipment. So make sure you're using equipment <coughs> that is aiding, understanding, who's an aeros being an example there. And also, he went through these levels of knowing, he identified all the different levels of understanding in mathematics and the order in which we must kind of teach mathematics in order for children to really grasp it. And then he was talking about the three separate components of a mathematical idea, and all of that approach was underpinned by questioning. So always the, the teacher questioning the learner, the learner questioning the teacher, and you having this kind of dialogue between you to assess their, their level of understanding. So if we look at the kind of concrete materials, you've got Phase 10, you've got air, you've got Numicon, you've got 10 frames. Uh, this is an example of how you can use the Air rods to tell the story of eight. So that's all the number bonds to eight. And for those of you that don't know, and-air rods are coloured rods, but they don't have the gradings on them. So the uh, 10 rod is orange, um, but it's not got any marks on it to say that it's 10, because you don't always want it to be 10. So if you look at the yellow rod there, the yellow rod is representing 5 in this diagram. But actually, the yellow rod is half the length of the 10 rod, of the orange rod. So if I wanted to say, well, my orange rod is 48, then my yellow one is 24. So you can use them for much larger numbers. You can use them for ratio, fractions, doubles, trebles, halves, all sorts of things. (coughs) So air rods can be used all the way from reception through to GCSE and beyond if you wanted to. They're very, very, very sophisticated, but they're not base 10 materials as such. So if you see them with the gradings on them, that's not (coughs) rods; that's a base 10 material. Um, still useful, but it's it's not Cruisneroids as such. Uh, So the levels of knowing of mathematical ideas here, the very first one Professor Schala identified was the intuitive level. And that... Really, it's where we're saying to the children, let's start with something that you're already happy with, that you already know, that you're already comfortable with, and we're going to link this new learning to what you already know. And it serves two purposes. We know that we remember things better, that we can link them to something we already know. But also, if the first thing the child is introduced to is something they're familiar with, they're relaxed, they're not so anxious, they think they can do it. So a lot of the time, um, you'll be starting the lesson with something you know they already know how to do, and building on that knowledge. So that's the intuitive level, and then comes the concrete level. So that's where we're modelling maths with whatever materials we've chosen, and then there's the pictorial representation. And I think this is the one that kind of gets lost sometimes in schools they're pretty good with the concrete materials they're pretty good with the abstract it's that concrete in between that seems to be missing and that's what stops the children being able to visualize the maths so we've got intuitive concrete tutorial then we can get onto the abstract and only then do we get onto the abstract so that's when we can start talking about symbols and equations and that kind of thing uh, but Professor Sharma was saying we need to be careful here because if we stop there, then the children don't see the point of doing the maths. It's just abstract. So they need to have the application, the understanding of why would we need to do that in the first place. And certainly in um, countries like Singapore, that's very successful as you know in teaching maths, the children are never given the calculation without a context. So if you had 136 take away 28 as your calculation, the children would be asked, what could we have 136 of, and why would we need to be taking away 28? And they would have to come up with a context that was relevant to them, that they understood, to give them a reason for doing the maths in the first place. And I think that's really important. Particularly with children who are struggling, who are thinking, oh this is just something else I'm you know, finding really difficult to do. If They can see the real-life context of why they need to do it. It gives them more motivation to actually carry out the calculation. And the whole thing, um, as I say, is underpinned with communication. So lots of talking, lots of dialogue. So those are the kind of levels of knowing. And if you look at dyscalculia interventions, they will follow that structure pretty much to the letter. The three components of a mathematical idea are the language, the mathematical language that we use, the maths concept. And the procedure, and the procedure is highlighted there because that's the one that tends to get the the energy in schools. Uh, when you're teaching, often the children are taught how to do it. They're not taught the underlying maths, and they don't really understand the language that goes with it. They're just taught the method, um, and that's where a lot of them fall down. Because if they can't remember the method, they've got nowhere to go. They don't understand the concept. They haven't understood the language. So if they've forgotten the procedure, That's it, they're stuck. So Professor Sharma was saying we need to have equal emphasis on all of those three elements, the language, the concept, thank you, and the procedure to make sure that the children are getting a complete understanding of of what's going on. In terms of mathematical language, um, (coughs) I try and kind of think of it like this in a way that say you were learning French, for example. If I put some French uh, words up on the board now, we could probably have a go at translating it. We could probably get some meaning out of the French, because we've got a kind of, some of you, I'm sure, are very good at French, but most of us have got a kind of basic understanding of French. So we'd be able to get something out of it. If I put it up in English and said, now I want you to translate it into French, that would be much, much harder, wouldn't it? And what we do in maths is we give the children the word problem say, take the maths out of it, but we don't have to say, here's the maths, come up with the language. And that's one of the things that we need to do. So in order to be fluent in a language, you need to do it both ways. You need to be able to translate both from one way to the other way. And the children need a lot more practice in looking at the maths and coming up with the language themselves, and that, that will really help them. So that's one of the ways they certainly do in Singapore, uh, with this idea of, them a calculation, they have to come up with a real problem that goes with that calculation. So the last thing I wanted to talk to you about this morning is bar modeling. Now, I've been teaching maths for a very long time now. And this has been my wow moment in all the years of teaching maths. The bar model has been the thing that has revolutionized (coughs) my uh, work with children who are struggling. Um, It is, I suppose you could call it, from Singapore. They use it in Singapore a lot. Uh, In Singapore, they use little strips of paper to model the rectangles that are used in the bars. Uh, so the children can physically move the paper around. And because they're using strips of paper, they sometimes call it Singapore strip modelling. Do you Google I have Googled it, and uh, shouldn't have. <laughs> so if you're on a school computer, it's not that I do. But the bar model has been the one thing that has really enabled a lot of children that I work with to... Get to grips with word problems, which are notoriously difficult for dyslexic children and with children, and it helps the children to understand what they need to do. The NCTM um, have kind of put it really well. They said, "It's not often. It's not that they can't do the calculation. Sometimes they can't, but it's not the calculation. They don't know which calculation to do." They don't understand the word problem on any level. They don't know whether they're adding, subtracting, multiplying, dividing. And the bar model, it doesn't give them the answer, but it tells them how to get <coughs> to the answer. So it models the maths to show them what they need to do. So it's a very visual, very good step between the word problem and the abstract maths that they need to do. So I've got an example here, a typical kind of word problem. And when I was teaching maths uh, full time a while ago, this is the way I would have taught it. I would have said to the children, don't worry that they're called Larry and Mary. That doesn't matter. We don't need to worry about that. But what I want you to do is pick out the key numbers and the key terms. And they're going to look at that and think three times. Three times. That's really important. So they write down three times. And then they'll write down 120. That's also really important. And then they'll think, okay, I either need to multiply 3 by 120, they might do that, or I'm going to divide 120 by 3. And then we say, no, 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 you've got to divide by 4. And they're thinking, where's the 4? There's no 4 in that question. So all that kind of rucksack thing, I don't know if you do that, all that um, strategy for working with word problems isn't working here, because a 4 has arrived from nowhere. What are we going to do? And when you look at the bar model, that's where the four comes from. Larry has got three times as much as Mary. So whatever rectangle Mary has, and we don't know what she's got, but it doesn't matter. We can just give her a rectangle. Larry has got three of them, and that's where the four comes from. So it makes sense of that word problem and stops them thinking, well, where's that four from? So that's one of the kind of strengths of the bar model. And this next one that I wanted to show you, um, again, is really, when you look at it, you think, okay, this is a problem. So we've got Sam's got five times as many marbles as Tom. Sam gives Tom 26 marbles, and they've now got exactly the same. How many marbles have they got all together? I know we've got, what, two minutes? So I'm just gonna give you one minute just to have a little bit about action. As you might anxiety. Anyone feeling anxious? I'm not gonna pick on anybody. How is it going? Anybody done it? So, algebraically, that that problem would be maybe um, your, your P7, P8 type problem. Um, algebraically, I think it's 5x minus 26 equals x plus 26. And then you've got to get all your x's on one side and all your numbers on the other side and work it out. Yeah if you draw the bar model, you can see that Sam has got five times as many marbles as Tom. And when Sam gives some of his marbles to Tom, they've got exactly the same amount. So that was the before situation, five times as many as Tom. Afterwards, they've got exactly the same. So where are the 26 marbles that Sam gave to Tom? So there's two rectangles that have just moved, so if you see, I haven't got a moving thing, but if you look at the two rectangles at the end of Sam's five, and you move them down to Tom, those two rectangles are 26. What does that tell us about each of the rectangles? 13, and now we know there are six altogether, so there's 78 marbles altogether. It is ridiculously it's simple compared to the algebraic way of doing it. So that's really kind of beauty of the bar model. Does that make sense? Yes. Right. Um, so just to kind of sum up and to leave you excited, hopefully, about the bar model. These are where we're at really in terms of strategies. Multisensory, goes without saying, I think we all know that. Visualisation as much as you possibly can. Can they see the mass? Can they imagine it? Can they visualise it? Concrete, pictorial abstract. Emphasise the development of mathematical language. Overlearning with the prompt cards, key facts, direct facts and modelling, which I would recommend wholeheartedly. So thank you very much for your attention. Thank you so much, Judy. I just so wish you would be my math teacher. I used to have that, I so awesome. thank you very much. really interesting yeah, and adorative. Thank, awesome. adorn-
0: thank you. I hope you <laughs> enjoyed <pretty much. laughs> that. <you. laughs> And apologies for the slightly lower quality audio there. If you want to know more and see some of the links related to this podcast, look up the show notes at bulletmapstudio.com forward slash. 16. Just the the numerals 16, the the number of the podcast. And we'll list all of the links in there. We'll also get round to putting some links into the actual description of this podcast. So from your player, you can click straight to the Dyslexia Scotland uh, conference webpage and their website and links about Judy Hornigold, etc. And if you're interested in uh information about mind mapping there'll also be some links in there as well so thanks for listening bye this podcast is sponsored by dyslexia it's my day job when i'm not hosting this podcast tell me do you know what you want to achieve in the workplace but you're struggling with how to achieve it maybe you suspect some traits of dyslexia are getting in the way well that's where dyslexia productivity coaching comes in because We give you a simple productivity system for your Apple devices that harnesses the creativity that comes with your dyslexia. It includes proven methods like note taking, reminders, speech to text, mind mapping, and more, all tailored to your needs. It'll free up your time and help you achieve outstanding results. Book a complimentary call to discuss it with me. And if you do it soon, I may also be available to coach you personally So don't be shy. Go to dyslexiaproductivitycoaching.com or swipe up and book it now.